Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio, a weekly look at news and politics and culture from a socialist perspective. This week uh, we have a special bonus episode. We're sharing audio from a public meeting Rupture Radio and Rise organised on the case for eco-socialist degrowth with eco-socialist feminist and environmental historian Stephanie Barca and People for Profit TD and Rise member Paul Murphy. Um, over the last few years, degrowth has been quite a buzzword among left environmentalists and an issue of debate among socialists and eco-socialists. It's a debate we ourselves are currently having in Rise. And so this meeting, uh, we looked at three key issues. So one was what is degrowth? Is it a slogan, a framework, or both? Two, what do we mean by eco-socialist degrowth? And three, how does this framework allow us to build the movements we need to challenge and ultimately overthrow the capitalist system, which is at the root of all these crises we faced. We hope you enjoy the meeting, and if you are interested to learn more about degrowth, there's an article on the necessity of eco-socialist degrowth by Paul Murphy and Jess Spear in the new issue of Rupture magazine out this week, and linked in the podcast description are books and articles on degrowth by Stefania Barca. We apologise in advance that the audio isn't as clear as we would have liked, in particular for the contributions from the floor part, the, the audio is a bit echoey. Um, this is due to it being a live event. We wanted to include them because we think that the discussion and the debate provoked by the contributions uh, um, really add to the discussion and we didn't want to, to cut that out. Hopefully in future we can have improved sound quality. But for now, if you can't hear a bit, feel free to skip forward. Um, some of the speakers are more clearer than others. And that's it for now and I'll pass you over to Dermot Flood who chaired the event. <laughs> Okay, we're going to kick off. So, firstly, welcome everyone. It's uh, great to see everyone here. So, I am... Recording in progress. Oh. Okay, recording is in progress. Um, so, I'm on the Rupture Media Editorial Board, which produces both Rupture Magazine and the Rupture Radio Podcast. And I'm also a member of Rise, uh, which produces both the magazine and the podcast, and is a revolutionary eco-socialist network inside People Before Profit. This is our first public meeting. Uh, in over two years, so it's great to have everyone back and a little uh, disconcerting to be off Zoom, but we'll get over that. Um, so before I introduce our speakers, I'll just give some background to the um, the topic and the meeting. So I think most people will be, will be aware that at the moment we find ourselves uh, with uh, in the middle of a lot of crises that are going on. There's war, the cost of living, the growth of far-right and reactionary forces, uh, attacks on minorities, the rights of women. Uh, housing and the skyrocketing cost of living, which I'm sure everybody in here feels uh, very ac acutely. And all of this is on top of the climate crisis, which is ongoing. Uh, and, and just to give some context to that, so at the moment in, in India and Pakistan, they're scorching temperatures, uh, reaching 60 degrees in some areas, and that's on top of ongoing droughts in Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, and Somalia. Uh, oh, I've skipped the page. I'll get ahead of myself. Uh, yeah, and last summer, people would have been aware of the, the wildfires across Europe and intense uh, heat throughout the world. Um, and I think this is evidence of the worsening situation which the planet finds itself in. And uh, most people in here don't need an IPCC report to tell us that radical change is needed and that it's unlikely to come from those at the top. Um, the, so the question then is, how do we build a powerful movement that's able to demand that change and, and to force that transition that's needed? And it's clear that that movement... 
uh, that, that, that is necessary, we'll also need to address all of those issues which I mentioned before, uh, because at heart, all of these things are rooted in the system as currently constituted. And even the IPCC authors and scientists who aren't the most radical bunch um, have noted that this is rooted in the economic system that we're, we're currently operating under and also call for, for system change. And I guess the big question then is how do we give character to that and, and fill that with content? And there's an ongoing discussion there on how we build an effective eco-socialist movement. And tonight we're joined by two speakers who will be discussing an idea that's emerging in both environmental circles and the eco-socialist left. Uh, and this is the idea around degrowth. Hopefully our speakers will be able to give more background to this idea, uh, including what is degrowth, what is the concept, where does it originate, uh, along with what we mean by eco-socialist degrowth uh, and the distinction from like, the, established of the, the established idea of the term or expanding beyond that and building on the idea. Uh, and then finally, how does this framework allow us to build the movements that we need that I mentioned before? Um, so just our first speaker is going to be Paul Murphy. Uh, Paul is a TD for uh, the Eco-Socialist Party People Before Profit and also a member of the Revolutionary Socialist Network that I mentioned before, RISE, who are, are hosting the meeting. Paul is a regular, regular contributor to Rupture Magazine and the Rupture Radio podcast and recently co-authored The Necessity of Eco-Socialist Degrowth with Jess Beer in the latest issue of Rupture, which can be purchased at this meeting. Uh, and we're also very happy to have uh, Stefania Barca, Stefania is a distinguished researcher, Beatrice Galindo, at the University of Santiago uh, de Compostela. She is the author of many books and articles, including The Forces of Reproduction and Towards a Political Economy of Degrowth. Tonight, we'll hear presentations from both Paul and Stefania uh, before opening it up to the floor so everyone here can make a contribution, any comments or questions. Um, and then we'll hand back over to Paul and Stefania to answer any comments or to give their final closing thoughts. Um, and then we'll round up the meeting there. Um, and for now, I'll just turn over to Paul, who's going to speak for about eight minutes, if he can manage it. Thank you. And it's great to see so many people here. Um, I want to start with uh, a quote from a German Marxist philosopher called Walter, Ber Wal Walter Benjamin. Um, he said, Marx says that revolutions are the locomotives of world history, but perhaps it is quite otherwise. Perhaps revolutions are an attempt by the passengers on this train, namely the human race, to pull the emergency brake. And I think, you know, when you look around, um, it's very clear that capitalism as a system is driving all of humanity to disaster and in a relatively short space of time. Um, from the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine and the inter-imperialist tensions related to it, which are at the biggest level for well over half a century. Um, and these are nuclear powers. Um, from the fact that we're in the sixth mass extinction event, from the, to the fact that the IPCC Working Group 3 report says that the, the window of opportunity to secure a livable future for, for humanity is rapidly uh, closing. Um, never mind the attacks on reproductive rights, the attacks on LGBTQ people, the rise of the far right, a housing crisis, cost of living crisis. You know, it's very, very clear that this system, um, the Organization of Society for Private Profit, is a threat to 
humanity and is not capable of turning the train around, getting off the tracks. It is determined to drive us towards complete and absolute uh, disaster. And it means that, you know, what Rosa Luxemburg wrote about um, the question of socialism or barbarism, which was reasserting human agency, which had been missing from parts of the Marxist socialist movement, which saw kind of the movement towards socialism as an inevitability, saw things kind of fatalistically in a positive way. In a way, we need to reassert, and in a, in a, in a sense, in the opposite direction, where like all of humanity, the sections of humanity which think about this, think that like we're just headed for disaster and there's probably nothing we can do. We need to try and reassert, reinsert human agency and the possibility of building a force that can pull the emergency brake, which in our opinion is an organized, conscious, working class and oppressed uh, people um, in order to, to do that. That the choice facing all of humanity is the choice between eco-socialism and barbarism. That either we bring the uh, age of uh, the, what's been de- described as the Capitolinian, um, the first part of the Anthropocene, either we bring that to a close with eco-socialist revolution, or we're faced into a new and extremely dark period for all of humanity. And the question for us as eco-socialists is whether the concept of degrowth is a useful one to help us forge that force to pull the emergency brake. Um, I have to start, obviously, by defining what degrowth is. And you know, there are disputed and differing definitions of degrowth. Um, a definition that I think is very good, that's from an excellent book by Jess- Jason Hickel called uh, Less is More. He describes it as a planned downscaling of energy and resource use to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a safe, just, and equitable way. Um, It involves a rejection of the ideology of what he describes, I think, quite accurately as growthism, the idea that like a rising tide lifts all boats, the way to improve people's lives is more and more uh, economic uh, growth. Um, And I uh, agree with that. I I think that that degrowth is absolutely uh, necessary. It is I think, like objectively the case, that to avoid climate catastrophe, we uh, have to reduce energy usage, reduce the global envelope of energy that is used on the world scale, um, and reduce our material throughput. Material throughput is essentially like the amount of stuff that we use, and the amount of material stuff extracted from the earth and used in the production of things. That is absolutely essential. It's unavoidable. That if we are to avoid disaster, if we're to pull the emergency brake, it will involve um, taking those actions. Um, you know, in, in short, it's the idea that we cannot electric car our way out of this climate catastrophe. You know, the government in Ireland, its most ambitious plan is the idea we're going to get everyone out of you know um, petrol or diesel cars, and we're going to have a million electric cars on the road. You know, the extent of their ambition is to change from one mode of individual travel in private cars to electric cars. But there isn't the lithium on the earth, um, certainly not without a massive cost in terms of the consequences of extractivism, the impacts on indigenous people, and the impacts on our environment to enable the whole world to shift from private electric, private yeah, combustion engine cars to private electric cars. The same applies to solar panels. 
We also, solar panels are really important. I'm a big fan of solar panels. We can't solar panel our way out of the crisis. The response needs to be more than simply shifting, um, well, shifting from fossil fuels um, into uh, renewable uh, power. Um, of course, for us as socialists, that it isn't enough just to recognize the need to reduce energy and material uh, usage, of course. And because all of humanity isn't equally responsible for the crisis that we're in. The top 1% is responsible for 15% of uh, the global emissions. Um, even more importantly than the private luxury consumption of the top 1% is the fact that they're the ones who make the decisions. They're the Elon Musks, they're the Jeff Bezoses, they're the ones, they're the big oil corporations, they're the ones that make the decisions driven by profit that is responsible for the catastrophe that the world uh, is, is in. And so an eco-socialist vision of degrowth means that we achieve that reduction in energy usage and in material throughput um, by degrowing to nothing the activities of the capitalist class, by abolishing completely their private air travel, by leaving fossil fuels uh, in the ground, um, and does so by having a planned, democratically organized economy that enables us then to have growth in terms of healthcare, in terms of education, in terms of public luxury, in terms of the quality of ordinary people's lives, above all in the global uh, South. Some objections are raised on the left to embracing in this way what we propose, an idea of eco-socialist degrowth. There's a debate within Rise about it. This isn't a Rise position. There's a debate within People Before Profit. There's a debate on the international uh, left. One of the objections is precisely that, what I just said, is that, well, but the answer is, in response to, do we need degrowth? Well, we need growth and we need degrowth, what I just said. But that fundamentally isn't an answer to the question. Do we, on a global scale, need to reduce the total amount of energy used and the total material throughput or not? The answer is yes, and we think the science is clear. Well, then you're putting yourself correctly in the degrowth camp. Um, the second objection is that, well, degrowth isn't a slogan that is going to be able to mobilize uh, the masses. And we agree with that. We're not proposing degrowth or eco-socialist degrowth as a slogan that we go out on the streets and organize protests uh, around. Um, instead, we propose it as a concept to inform the sort of slogans that we use. Um, and not all the concepts that we on the revolutionary left use are immediately act as slogans. The concept of smashing the state and understanding that the capitalist state serves the interests of the ruling class, it needs to be dismantled, we need to build an alternative state based on popular or organs of democracy and so on. Um, it isn't a slogan for the mass of ordinary people, but it is a concept that enables us to orient ourselves in deep crises and also then be able to potentially come up with slogans which can mobilize ordinary people. You know, the, the Bolsheviks had a concept of the necessity of smashing the state Smashing the state wasn't a slogan that mobilized the masses, and but all power to the Soviets, so all power to a different, more popular uh, form of workers' democracy was a slogan that actually could mobilize uh, the masses. Just to, to finish on what all of this means from our perspective, um, is one, uh, the vision of an eco-socialist society that we have, is, is there needs to be a complete break with the idea that socialism is based on the superabundance of material goods. There cannot be a superabundance of material goods on a finite planet. That's just a scientific fact. So instead, we need to have a qualitative conception of what it means to have, for people to have a good life. Public luxury, high quality public goods, ex much expanded uh, common, commons and a healing of the rift 
between humanity and nature. Secondly, it means a rejection of the language of growth, which all of us can be affected by, using the language of sustainable growth, socialist growth, social growth, whatever, putting an adjective in front of growth, but therefore feeding into the idea that the way out of people's difficult lives is more, uh, consu- more growth in the basis of uh, a capitalist society. And thirdly, and I, I finish on this, that it can inform slogans and demands that actually can be popular. For example, it can inform the creation of or the development of an eco-socialist Green New Deal with demands like retrofitting of people's homes upfront, no cost to the householder, done by uh, the state, which reduces household energy use massively, deals with the question of the cost of uh, living, means that people have quality homes. That's a crucial part, for example. We have to say clearly, of course, there has to be a stop to the selling of turf. Of course, there has to be a stop to the burning of tor- turf. Absolutely, of course. But it has to be done in a way that doesn't see ordinary people be the victims of that. And therefore, you need to prioritize retrofitting grants uh, and so on to protect people. The idea of free, green, and frequent public transport. That's the alternative to individual car uh, usage. The idea of a four-day week without loss of uh, pay. And um, the idea of green jobs on a massive scale in terms of renewable energy, but also insulation, um, but also care jobs, uh, low, inc- low carbon, high quality care jobs that are predominantly feminized, predominantly undervalued, low paid, childcare, healthcare, uh, um, education. The right to repair. Uh, so for example, to tackle the question of planned obsolescence, to say that every good now has to have a you know, extended warranty Every good has to, has to be able to be uh, repaired as opposed to the model of created uh, once and then planned obsolescence. To dismantle the military industrial complex, uh, to curtail advertising, um, of which a huge amount of energy is spent and a huge part of it is about the creation of artificial uh, wants to keep the whole um, system uh, going. Um, taxing the rich, one of the best things you can do for the climate is take wealth out of the hands of the rich. Because they use it in a way that is disproportionately bad for the environment and the impact that ordinary people do to fulfill their very basic uh, needs. And then the final, and I think you know, the crowning demand, is the only way we're going to achieve a degrowth, a reduction in energy usage, a reduction in material throughput, which is absolutely necessary and in a way that is just, is by ending the organization of society on the basis of profit. Has to mean the only way it can happen in the time frame that it needs to happen is to take the key sections of the economy out of the hands of the rich, stop organizing them for profit, bring them into public ownership, democratically uh, plan them, and in that way achieve a high quality of life with a significantly reduced impact on the earth for every, absolutely every single person right across the world. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks a million, Paul. I think that overview will get us kicked off and I'll now let Stefania come in. So whenever you're ready, Stefania, thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks uh, very much to Paul. I, while he was speaking, I was wondering, I was asking myself, what can I add? He said already all the very key, important uh, things. And uh, I agree with pretty much everything um, he said. And um, also... Um, he said the key words, uh, uh, like for example, uh, uh, care work as part of the of the trans- 
transition to a post-carbon uh, society that's part of as key to the um, to the green new deal so i mean and this is not something that you hear uh, around so frequently it's uh, it's something that, that um, needs to be said because uh, most of the um, green new deal plants that i know of uh, do not take Uh, care uh, work into consideration that much or it's not care work is not that uh, central because the idea is that um, it's the the high carbon jobs that need to be replaced and so this means that um, it's in 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 uh, industry infrastructures and energy and transport are the sectors where new jobs need to be created new green jobs right but of course if we take <clears throat> a broader uh, approach to uh, what an eco-socialist transition should look like or or green new deal should look like um then um a broader approach to this is a feminist um degrowth approach and i will i will tell you what that means um very soon but uh, a feminist degrowth approach means um, that we also have to ask ourselves uh, what is valued and what is valuable in society. And it cannot be uh, that the only valuable uh, and valued work is uh, uh, so-called productive work, no? the industrial work. Um, uh, in fact, the, the, the very same uh, ideology of, uh, of uh, capitalist, liberal, neoliberal political economy, uh, a labor theory of value that is, uh, is basically uh, reduced, re very much um, reductive, reducing value to uh, the labor that produces commodities for the market. This is the root of the problem, the, the root of the ecological problem. Um, and this is uh, the, um, the key uh, contribution that um, ecofeminism and feminist political economy and specifically uh, ecofeminism has been given to, uh, to ecosocialism and also to the degrowth movement over the past a few decades. So this brings me to what I maybe I can add to this conversation. I, I won't speak very much, very long, because I, I very much um, look forward to having an exchange and, uh, and to hear of uh, what, what people think about this um, eco-socialist and uh, eco-feminist degrowth um, idea and, um, and especially uh, how this can translate into political strategy, because I think this is key right now. We are not anymore, we're not in the 90s anymore. We're not at a point where we have to convince ourselves and our peers that there is an ecological crisis, that there is uh, uh, climate change, that um, we need to do something, right? And so we are beyond that. We all know that something must be done. And now the key question is what and how is to be done. So 
Um, so the question of political strategy, but I, I will go back there. But just uh, just let me say, uh, I had taken a few notes. Um, let me just go quickly through them to get to the point. So first thing I wanted to say about degrowth uh, is that degrowth is, uh, is intended as a negative term. And so as Paul rightly pointed out, you don't go to the streets with a degrowth banner because nobody will follow you, right? But um, in the, um, the way it must be understood, degrowth, the D part, is like uh, there is um, a liberation uh, impetus behind it. So degrowth means liberation from. From what? Liberation from a model of society that it's neither ecological nor socialist. So why should we eco-socialist, or even why should we socialist, or even why should we, pe should we people <laughs> endorse a model that Sorry, what? I cannot see. How many minutes? Five minutes. Okay, all right. So, yeah. Um, so, liberation from this model. Okay, so this is the first point that perhaps will, uh, um, will help us uh, understand how that degrowth is not really um, a negative um, term. Then, um, the point that I was mentioning back, okay, I was saying that um, GDP growth is a, is a, is a patriarchal uh, model. Why? Because uh, as Marilyn Waring demonstrated already back in the 1980s, uh, and the whole field of feminist economics refers to her work, GDP growth is based on calculating, accounting for exclusively um, the work that uh, produces uh, value for the market. And uh, even if this work is uh, completely destructive of life, of the environment, is, even if this work uh, is not even producing um, wealth and, uh, and uh, uh, well-being for people, uh, but um, GDP growth, it's, uh, GDP accounting, is based on excluding all the work, the, the so-called women's work, uh, all the, the caring and reproductive work that is um, unpaid, right? So this is a model of uh, accounting that reflects an idea, an idea of wealth, an idea of society, the, which is basically the, 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 the um, capitalist version of patriarchy, right? So, um, this is why it's, uh, it's key, even from a feminist point of view, uh, uh, growth, GDP growth is not uh, our model of society. Now, um, what uh, to add to this? I think that uh, Paul already mentioned uh, the Green New Deal. I, I think that uh, Green New Deal is, is very important as a... Um, capacity of planning the kinds of uh, demands, the kinds of uh, uh, economic policies that we can struggle for. So my, I think my message is that um, Green New Deals do not explicitly um, reference degrowth, but uh, they are not even not um, um, explicitly, 
explicitly aiming at GDP, GDP growth either, which means that uh, uh, they are definitely compatible with a degrowth perspective, with the perspective of liberation from this GDP growth, uh, this, this capitalist patriarchal uh, GDP growth. So, um, so Green New Deal plans, let's take them very seriously. I, together with uh, Jason Hickel uh, and Jorgos Kallis and other people, uh, a few years back in, in 2019, we contributed to a Green New Deal for Europe uh, plan that was, at the time, was um, put together, actually uh, was um, uh, encouraged by DM25. Uh, then um, uh, they, they called a number of uh, activist scholars from all over Europe to contribute. So that's uh, in the spirit of uh, degrowth and climate justice and environmental justice and feminism. We all accepted to, um, to work on this plan, which is, uh, which, which is, I think, a very good plan, but uh, for lack of uh, a proper political strategy, uh, it's never been really, um, it's never been, that 10 minutes gone. Okay, I thought I had 15 minutes, maybe I misunderstood. <laughs> but in any case, um, I think that uh, I can uh, finish here just saying that um, if you want to know more, I can uh, tell you in the debate about this Green New Deal for Europe. Uh, oh, I have 10 more minutes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry for my confusion. Confusion. Okay. So um, yeah, the Green New Deal for Europe uh, is um, is uh, I think it's a good plan. You can check it out. It's online. Uh, the document we we um, we produced. It's called. Uh, um, well, I don't remember exactly right now. I will send you the link. Um, and um, in this in this plan, there is uh, both a green degrowth perspective and a climate justice and environmental justice perspective, and there is a feminist perspective as well. In fact, one of the uh, policies that we were suggesting were was called the care income, and um, and this was the idea of um, um, of uh, establishing. Um, a, a public, uh, publicly funded income um, to uh, compensate for all the unpaid uh, care work uh, done in society. And by unpaid care work, we we adopted a broader definition than just domestic work. It's not just domestic work, even though, of course, domestic work and uh, caring for people in the households is a huge part of it. But there is, uh, we, we started also from observing that nowadays, and especially during the pandemic, it became very clear that there is a lot of unpaid caring work that people do in communities, for example, supporting each other, supporting the, the most vulnerable, um, supporting people who um, are not, are unsupported by the neoliberal drawback, have been left unsupported by the neoliberal drawback both in terms of um, access to um, public health, uh, access to care, access to public services, and also in terms of access to income and to, um, yeah, to economic uh, opportunities. 
So there is a lot of uh, um, of solidarity work, of uh, of caring work, and it's uh, it's not uh, um, not even just uh, towards people. There is also a lot of caring work that uh, is done towards the environment, both the urban environment. For example, if you think of uh, all those groups that are uh, taking back, uh, reclaiming, uh, and occupying. Uh, uh, spaces, decaying spaces in our uh, cities, um, buildings uh, which, uh, for one reason or another, have been abandoned. No, the, the, the so-called ruins of, of capitalism, and um, uh, occupying them, and uh, repairing, restoring them, and filling them in with caring activities, with uh, with cultural uh, activities, with uh, uh, political activities, with community uh, work, mm? and all this is of course unpaid work, and it's uh, it's very important for the uh, well-being, wealth, and well-being of a lot of people, and also the um, the rural space, uh, or uh, or for example, people uh, doing practicing. Urban farming, no, occupying uh, empty plots in the city and producing food and in um, um, and producing food and and also sharing this food, right? So um, and in the rural environment, there is also a lot of caring work that people do for free. Um, and here, for example, I'm thinking of um, uh, peasant farming. Uh, whereas peasant farming, especially when it's practice, practiced uh, as agroecology, uh, is um, um, based on uh, it's labor intensive. It's based if you don't use chemical inputs and if you don't use um, herbicides and pesticides, then you have to put a lot of your work, a lot of additional work in uh, caring for um, for food, for the land, and for making. Uh, sure that uh, for for um, uh, for having a healthy healthy land producing healthy food right so uh, this is this is all um, these are all forms of caring work that are socially important uh, even though they are uh, um, unseen um, in uh, uncalculated and accounted for in uh, in GDP accounting and also. Um, uh, not uh, considered as producing value, whatever this value is, uh, and so unsupported in many ways. So the caring income was one way we devised, one mechanism we devised through to uh, really make a difference in uh, in how society values uh, work and what kind of work is valued. Of course, in not market terms. When, when we speak about value, we have to distinguish, right, between uh, market and non-market value. Um, but the care income was just one of many uh, other measures. This must be um, must be kept clear because, uh, of course, uh, the 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 plan is. Um, uh, is um, this was part of a larger package of uh, policy measures called uh, um, uh, the, the Green Works um, um, package. So here the idea was to um, invest public money in creating uh, jobs, in creating full employment 
for all people who do actually want a job in um, in protecting and restoring uh, the environment and in uh, um, abating um, CO2 emissions. So this is very similar to what you can find in any other Green New Deal plan. I, for example, uh, you may be familiar with the, with the, the US Green New Deal. Um, I also read that uh, in a book by Anne Pettifor that uh, there has been a UK Green New Deal plan uh, going on for quite some time. Um, so the, and I mean, so there are different um, different uh, proposals, but they all agree on the need for creating jobs that um, are actively um, um, reducing carbon emissions. And um, uh, and these jobs can be in various uh, sectors. I was saying, as I was mentioning before. Uh, in the sectors, uh, in, 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 in infrastructures, energy, transport, uh, the, also the um, insulation of buildings uh, and all this, right? But at the same time, we have to consider, uh, and most recent, most recent um, understandings of, uh, of, of Green New Deal are also considering this, we have to consider that there are uh, jobs that are already low carbon and by the like caring jobs or agroecology, peasant farming. So uh, by investing in these sectors and expanding, greatly expanding these sectors, because these are the sectors that also have been mostly most unsupported um, uh, over the past uh, decades. Um, so by simply investing in these sectors and, and, and expanding uh, job opportunities in these sectors, so we are already de facto reducing um, the uh, carbon emissions while at the same time also um, increasing social uh, well-being. Right, because these jobs respond to real social needs. Uh, they not they don't produce commodities. They produce uh, directly uh, well-being, people's well-being. Um, I think that my last point was uh, that we have to basically what what um, is the common denominator of the politics of uh, um, eco-socialist feminist. Um, degrowth um, is the firm rejection of uh, a mantra that we have been all um, uh, educated in and raised in in the past few decades. And this is the mantra that I would call of uh, trickle-down economics. So the idea, the very neoliberal plan to convince uh, all of us that only by growing profits, then um, this is the only mechanism through which we can then hope that some wealth will, will exceed and trickle down to uh, society, right? So this is the mantra that, we, that has um, uh, driven uh, all globalization, neoliberal globalization policies in the in the past at least three decades, 
and uh, and this is the real and and people have been very much convinced of this this is the reason why um everybody uh is uh, uh if not uh, actively supportive but at least um hopeless uh, about the possibility of replacing um, capitalist political economy with something else, because everybody's convinced that we need the pie to grow infinitely in order to have uh, some possibility of uh, reaching, um, of wealth reaching the basis of society. So until we get rid of this idea, um, it's, it will be very difficult to convince people uh, that there are alternatives, no? Because trickle-down economics is uh, is very much supported by the the there is no alternative uh, ideology by capitalist realism, no? So this looks like the only reality, the only possible political realism, but it's not. And so it's important that I think that strategically speaking. Uh, to conclude, I think that what we should ask, we eco-socialists should ask ourselves is um, what kind of uh, examples can we give, what kind of policies can we bring to people's attention that do not uh, reflect the principle of trickle-down economics and that, produce, that they have directly produced wealth and well-being um, without destroying the, the biosphere and without exploiting uh, people. So I think this is the key question now. We have to be very, very pragmatic and, uh, and be um, aware of, uh, of what kind of um, positive uh, examples can be brought to the attention of, uh, of the people and say, look, this can be done. Thank you. All right, thanks a million, Stefania. Uh, so I'll now open up questions and comments to the floor if people want to come in. Uh, we don't have a separate mic, so if you could just, uh, you know, make your voice heard, especially so Stefania can hear. Uh, everybody speaking and also you can come in and answer any contributions that anyone else makes but at the end I'll bring in Paul and Stefania uh, so they can answer questions and give off uh, their own thoughts to round off the discussion um, and the only other thing is just to keep it brief and to um, try and stay on topic but I think that's open to everybody all right anybody want to come in yeah, just for, for catch on to speak. Now, first of all, I arrived late for which humble uh, apologies. Uh, I set up in good time and got caught in the most in a bus in the most horrendous traffic jam in the right way. But I did arrive just in time to hear Paul say that there is debate about this in Rise and there's debate about it in people's I guess I'm part of that debate. Paul and I are in the same party. I think we agree on 95 or 20 percent of our issues and views. We have the same fundamental view as well. But I don't agree about degrowth. Uh, I don't agree with it theoretically or practically, and I'll try and explain why as quickly and as briefly as possible. Um, uh, right. In the first instance, uh, degrowth under capitalism is an oxymoron. It's like fried uh, snowballs. You can't have it. What you can have under capitalism, of course, is a recession. 
And we cannot go to working class people and say what we demand is a recession. You can't plan degrowth from the capitalism because capitalism is made up of thousands, millions of unions all struggling to grow all the time. Um, and uh, that, is, that is how it is. Uh, it's not a transitional demand degrowth either, that because transitional demand, the start from the existing consciousness of workers and then move towards beyond capitalism. Degrowth doesn't do that. Under socialism, uh, uh, degrowth, I think, is meaningless. Under socialism, clearly what we need is not degrowth, but the abolition of whole series of forms, the forms of production. We need the abolition of, of fossil fuels. We need the abolition of the arms industry. We need an abolition uh, of advertising and all sorts of other forms of uh, harmful production. But at the same time, we need an expansion of all sorts of forms of production. We need expansion of health and education, which means more hospitals, more schools, especially in the global south. I mean, it, just, it involves making more things. We need more public transport. That involves making more things. And we need it on a huge scale in the global south. And I don't think there's any way in advance of calculating whether that means more or less material throughput. So I don't think degrowth is useful in that sense. Two last points. One, just an argument about the so-called labour theory of value. There can be conceptual confusion here. Marx's labour theory of value is a theory about what determines the exchange rate between commodities under capitalism. It is not at all a theory about what is socially valuable. And so uh, uh, I don't think it's uh, a, a notion that you can have a feminist or other kind of critique of this because it's undervaluing women's labour or undervaluing is missing the point. It's not that kind of theory. And the last point is this, that I don't agree with Paul uh, about the relationship between degrowth as a conceptual uh, position and practice. I don't think it's like smashing the state and uh, all power to the Soviets, in which all power to the Soviets was the practical uh, implementation of the theoretical position of smashing the state. I don't think you can do that uh, with degrowth. I think they pull in opposite directions. So that, as quickly as I could, is a summary of why I disagree. Thank you, John. Much appreciated. Uh, so, Stefania has just noted that she's having trouble speaking. So, if people don't mind, I might ask. I'm having trouble hearing. Oh, hearing. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Obviously, not speaking. Uh, <laughs> I'm having trouble speaking. Stefania's uh, no. <laughs> having trouble hearing. So, I'm going to encourage people, if they would, come up to the podium to speak. Um, but that shouldn't stop anybody, or it's not too long to come up here. Um, you can also come up here, I suppose. Uh, Devin is pointing out. You can just turn around and try and project, project your voice that way, and we'll see if that works. And uh, also, I didn't mention that while anyone else is speaking, you can just give me like a pointer, I'll put you down uh, on the list and try and keep track of people who indicate it. Um, so, as far as I know, the only person who indicated as well is, uh, as well is uh, Jess. Do you want to come in? Yeah, I. I appreciate John. I knew John would come in, which I'm so happy that John showed up to come in, because it's an important debate that I think we want to have um, about what should we say, how do we build our movement. Um, and it, it is a bit unfortunate that John got caught in a traffic accident, because I think Paul did answer the issue of, well, we need growth as well as degrowth. We agree. Um, we absolutely need to degrow all the things that Paul mentioned before, the military, all 
the, you know, the very wealthy, their consumption, private jets, all of that stuff. And we need to grow public care jobs, all of those things. And, and whether that's a growth in general, in total, or a degrowth, I get John's point. Um, but I think the point of the framework is there are socialists who argue that we can have socialist growth and that we can have, um, what is it called? Luxury, uh, fully automated luxury communism. <laughs> and, and the idea that like, if you have degrowth, then um, somehow we just won't invent anything anymore. There are socialists who argue that. And I think it's important for eco-socialists to push back against that and say, no, that's not the way forward. The way forward is to move out of single car use and into public transport, as Paul mentioned. It's to retrofit homes. It's to recognize when we build new homes, we need to move away from concrete. We need to make sure they're built with things that don't increase emissions. Like, we need to use it as a framework to develop demands that address social inequality and oppression, as well as emissions. And I see it in that respect. Um, but actually, what I wanted to come in on, um, but I'm hoping Stefania can respond and, and say more about is, women largely are responsible for household management and household purchasing, and households are responsible for a lot of consumption. And a lot of that comes from advertisement, and you know you have to buy this product to keep your house super clean, and you need this vacuum cleaner to keep your floors super clean, and you know, well, you'll have to buy a vacuum cleaner in two years because that vacuum cleaner is now finished and it can't be repaired. And there is an issue there in terms of feminism and liberating women from household chores, as well as liberating us from the type of consumption that capitalism relies on. And I do think we need a framework that degrowth helps informs where we can say no to that. And one way to do that is to ban advertisement. I'm like on a, a thing about bad advertisement because I think we wouldn't buy half the crap that we buy without advertisement and capitalism cannot exist without it. It needs to create wants and desires. And it's not that you wouldn't have advertisement of social goods and a play and things like that, but I'm talking about the constant advertisement that we all hate. I've been going on too long, so I'll stop there. Okay, my name is John McConnor. I'm also on PPP. Uh, and I haven't really told him in depth about the details. I'm not sure whether I agree or disagree with John's statement. But uh, one thing that occurred to me, which I'm always speaking, was that he talked about a four day week. Um, it, it made me kind of react to that. I, for years, have been saying in the trade union movement, I'm retired now, so I'm not that as active. But for years, saying in the trade union movement, that one of the problems of the trade union movement is that our, the, the, the solution to propose for unemployment is the economic growth. You know, so there, there's a, an automatic clash. And I would just say to all trade unions in the room, for heaven's sake, when you start saying back to your unions, stop saying more growth. You know, start thinking about them. The other thing is the reaction to Jess's idea about luxury communism, which sounds great all the time. I was thinking that, that reminded me that uh, I think Harvard, I can't give you the exact quote, but he said something along the lines that in, a, in an ideal kind of communist society, that we might be spending the morning working in a factory and the afternoon going fishing. Uh, and that might be a resolution. I mean, Paul was talking about four days, but I, I think that we put forward ideas such as that a lot of boring jobs have to be done, but if we do them in small amounts, like if we, if, you know, there would be uh, 
Uh, if we were all doing a boring job for half a day, out of three day, four day week, and doing other jobs, you know, it might make uh, the idea of production communism more acceptable. We can't get away from the boring jobs, empty the buildings, what they do to me now, you know, and then that, except we have to recycle, uh, obviously. Um, the, um, so, Sylvania uh, mentions the, uh, the notion about the uh, the way that uh, uh, capitalism, neoliberalism, defines work as work that's valued to the market. Uh, there's another big problem we have with, with capitalism, and that is, I mean, here's a lot. Uh, I've heard it recently about the war uh, uh, in uh, Ukraine, is the importance that the liberals attach to the rule of law. So, what they are primarily concerned in the rule of law, it sounds great. But the idea is that it means that property is sacrificed. But we can't touch property. Oh, once someone has owned property, we can't expropriate them. But then how are we going to handle the issue about fossil fuels? Because that is property. If there's fossil fuels in a reservoir under the ground and someone owns that, we, we're not going to be able to attack We're not going to get to the stage of uh, no, no more uh, uh, investment in, in, in fossil unless we say, sorry, you get your property, you're not getting your hands on that. You know, so, and that would take a major set of time to stay. The last thing I'd, I'd say is, I wanted to do a kind of a, uh, a little uh, advertisement. Just this month, a few days ago, I got my hands on a very short neat an e-book, although some data set has to go on the ability to give the e-book. A very soft published book is called Climate Change as Class War. Uh, and I would strongly recommend it. There's a guy called Matthew Cooper, I don't know who he is, but I started reading it, and it's a great, uh, it's a great read in, in the early stages, and I would strongly recommend it. Climate Change as Class War. Okay, that's it. Cheers, thank you. I think we can handle more ebooks and less advertising. Um, gentleman in the red shirt here, I don't know if you want to answer. Thanks. Just, uh, I wonder if she, uh, Stefania, can hear me as well. But anyway, I'm Julio, I'm PBB as well. I really value this debate that we're having. I just have a question that I'm still struggling to formulate. So, I suppose if we accept the idea of degrowth, I'm wondering if we're talking about the kind of overall planning of society or also of the individual level. So we all agree with the idea that we need to consume less, for example, we need to fly less. But as socialists, usually we would say, well, but it doesn't matter how much you fly yourself, if you fly four or five times a year, but the problem is systemic. During the pandemic, flights were flying and they were empty, basically. So it's, it looks as though you should change the business model instead of like what you do on the individual level. But if I understand correctly, the idea of degrowth from a socialist point of view can be can kind of bridge this debate, if you like. Like, in a sense, we need both. Uh, of course, I want to fly less because, uh, you know, I want to do my bits. But as a socialist, I want a planned... Uh, um, program that brings us to kind of just scale down uh, all the uh, energy consumption in general. And so we can kind of sort, have a more interesting discussion about that, perhaps. And I wonder what everyone thinks. Thank you very much. Uh, so next on the list, and I have a few people in there, so people want to indicate soon, just so that we know how many people are going to come in. That is the lady in red. <laughs> 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 yes, that's right. 
So just before I take more people in, I just want to also flag um, that RISE is holding an eco-socialist summer camp this uh, this summer in August, um, and you'll get a leaflet, I think, when you come in. So if you have any interest in that, there's a QR code on the leaflet as well. You can find out more information, um, and there's also sign-up sheets going around uh, that indicate if you want to stay in touch with us, if we're having future events, uh, to add us to the email list, and also if you're involved, interested in getting involved, um, that too. Uh, so next on the list is uh, Brendan. Uh, uh, thanks, um, and uh, it's very good to be having this uh, discussion and have this meeting. Um, a, a quick uh, question: um, a, a an eco-socialist degrowth model is, is broadly only possible, and I tend to agree with John, within the framework of at least a workers' government rather than a pro-capitalist government, because I think the logic of pro-capitalist governments is expanded production and consumption. Um, even the banning of advertising goes directly, as Tom was saying, to the question of property rights. So um, how do we um, progress this even marginally or partially, maybe even to gain us some more time within the current political balance of forces, which is not great from our side. Um, there, there are some people, and I, I, I worked out in North Kildare and Selbridge, and I was talking to somebody recently who's opposed to the construction of a fairly major uh, solar farm uh, because it's on arable land. I, I don't think this is particularly a problem. I think it's, it would be good to have a solar farm as against cattle. Uh, to produce methane. But even though there may be problems with solar panels and probably wind turbines in certain places, it seems to me that there, there's a need for energy, but that we may have to make some compromises on these things, um, even within the framework of capitalism. So how do, how do the speakers think we, we might accommodate that? Thank you. Uh, just a note, everybody, it's 10 past 8 now, so we have about 10 more minutes of the open discussion if you want to give both Paul and Stefani about five minutes. So I'm proposing that I close the list here in case anybody wants to indicate one final time. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I have a question, actually. I wonder why I'm not thinking about Yeah, I'm just, uh, I do have you on this, yeah. Um, I thought you were closing the discussion, but I just want to add one thing. Why are you coming to the Zero and passing the R in the city? 
you're actually not, you're going to turn off actual work with people. Why not call it regrowth and actually focus on what you're going to build? I don't, like, this is just negative. Right. I don't think it will resonate with people, to be honest. Cheers, thanks, Archie. No problem, Paul and Stefan, you'll come back in on that. Um, so next on the list is uh, the lady in the striped t-shirt there. Thank you. Yeah, um, so Paul had talked about that this isn't a slogan, this is a way to approach our policies and legislation. So I would just love to hear some examples of ways that this, that the degrowth philosophy can actually inform some policies and legislation that are currently on the table, like we can talk about the big ones like four-day work week and that kind of thing, but I'm more curious to know how does this affect some of the, you know, the maybe amendments being tabled or, you know, bigger conversations happening for policies that are currently being discussed. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, next is, uh, so, gentlemen in the black shirt, I believe, was just there, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah that's you. So, uh, just... Both Paul and Sahani alluded to the idea. You might just speak that way. Oh, yeah, sorry. Both uh, speakers alluded to the idea of a Green New Deal. And I just wondered uh, for a long time whether that um, slogan isn't in contradiction with the idea of degrowth or even eco socialist politics in general on the basis that the New Deal is something that comes from, you know, Franklin Roosevelt. And it wasn't a socialist program, it was a program, as I understand it, to stimulate demand in the capitalist economy. Uh, and, you know, it's being, I suppose, repurposed for, uh, for socialist politics, but it's also something that's very easily appropriated by groups that have no uh, interest in, uh, or are not on the left at all. Uh, so I wonder uh, whether it might not be uh, the best slogan for a socialist uh, Thank you. Uh, next is Des. Hi, I just wanted to grab the opportunity to mention uh, an environmental campaign uh, that, that's uh, just starting at the moment around the activities of Smurfit Kappa in Colombia. I, I was a PPP member and working in the law team with that briefing yesterday that was very powerful from uh, Pedro Lamoy of the indigenous community in Colombia who traveled over here late in recent days specifically to address the Smurfit Kappa AGM in Dublin. A matter so difficult to get, had an opportunity to do that. Um, and it was about the devastating impact that Smurfit Kappa are, are having in Colombia. Um, in uh, effectively, and with the assistance of the Colombian state, taking the, the land of the indigenous resect uh, people of, of, uh, from uh, that community, Pedro was from that, and is a representative of them, uh, taking their land um, and then developing monocultural forestry. Um, so there's the robbery, and then there's a huge impact in terms of the uh, biodiversity there. So Smurfit Kappa are, are one of the most da damaging corporates uh, in Colombia. Um, uh, and it's a campaign that's been partnered with the MESAC community in Colombia, but the Latin America Solidarity Centre based here in Dublin are working with them and hosted Pedro here, and uh, an international NGO called 
some of us, that's SUM, who monitor the activities of international corporates and the damage they do as well. Um, the brand new report coming out, um, I've got a hard copy. I think the electronic version is going to go up on the Solid, um, Latin America Solidarity Center website very shortly around this afternoon. Um, and I just, with the time, I want to take the opportunity just to, to mention that because I think there's a particular um, responsibility on activists in Ireland to expose and challenge some of the capitalist Thanks, Kevin. Cheers, Des. Uh, next is uh, Diana. Uh, yeah, thanks um, to Sanya. That was really interesting to follow up. Um, like, first of all, I think the idea that we shouldn't kind of demand degrowth or things that can happen degrowth because it's not possible under capitalism just seems like a bizarre kind of objection to me. Because, like, for years as a socialist activist, like, loads of things we call for aren't compatible with capitalism. And to some extent, like, that's part of the whole point, you know, is, you know, uh, protecting people and the planet reducing the exploitation of the natural world and people isn't compatible with capitalism, you know? Um, and degrowth is one way of getting to that conclusion, or if you're already at the conclusion that you need to overthrow capitalism and have socialism, it'll also lead you to degrowth. So, you know, I think these two things are very compatible with each other. Socialism, eco-socialism, degrowth, but not um, with capitalism. Um, and in terms of making it popular, um, I don't think you go out there and have you know batteries calling for degrowth, but it's kind of like there are demands that are already popular that would be even better um, if put in a degrowth framework. So one example that comes to me is like the idea of four-day week, like the unions in Ireland pushing for that at the moment, but the way they're trying to sell it is like, oh, don't worry, employers. Uh, there'd be the same productivity, just squeezed into four days, you know, so there wouldn't be any loss of production. And, like, that obviously means that you're going to have to work harder in four days that you're in work, you know, whereas from a degrowth perspective, it's like, um, work for four days, don't work any harder, and get paid the same amount, which is not compatible with capitalism either, because everything about capitalism is, you know, oriented around squeezing the last drop of, you know, effort out of people and reducing maximum commodities and comparing the cost for people in the planet, you know. Um, and I think an important thing that we really need to have out from the centre as well is that redistribution is totally essential to any energy growth that in order to be able to reduce production and output of goods, you need to actually massively redistribute wealth, you know, seize all the wealth of the billionaires and redistribute it. And that's like kind of number one kind of demand that is also like a, a very popular demand, I would think. Like, you know, I'd love to get my hands on some of you not much as well, I'm sure everybody else in the world would too, you know. Um, yeah, so and just finally, um, if if you like some of the ideas that you've been hearing here, like I think the most important thing that people can do who are concerned about um, doing something to stop this um, climate catastrophe, the disaster, the capitalism being towards is to get politically active, like in environmental campaigns, and um, particularly in People for Profit, which is Ireland's only eco-socialist party organised across the country, branches nationwide. So if you're interested in you know, being involved more in this debate and actually getting involved in campaigns on the ground, um, log on to pvp.ie. There's information there more about like what we do. <coughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.
Thank you. Uh, so I have three people left, and I believe it's like 8.15, 8.16 now, so if everyone who's left can maybe go for a minute or two, uh, we should wrap up at 8.20 and allow our speakers to come back in. Uh, so next on the list, Keen, do you want to come in? Um, so I'm Keen, people are popping, all that. Um, so I'm not an expert in any of this. Uh, this isn't my wheelhouse. But as I, and I think I fall out on the pro-social ego with the concept, side of the argument. As I understand it, it's, it's about recognizing that there's multiple planetary uh, boundaries, so multiple limits. Uh, the social left has now, generally speaking, I think, accepted that there's a limit, the amount of CO2 you can put out there. Uh, and that wasn't always the case. Uh, um, there was, in the past, you know, socialists demanded uh, uh, no nuclear power, open up more coal plants instead. And I think it's a progress. And for people maybe, the capitalist class, even to this day, talk about, well, maybe we don't need to reduce the amount of CO2 we put out, Maybe future technologies will mean carbon capture, will mean um, uh, 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 we can just put tinfoil into the sky and we, we can survive that way. Maybe technology will fix it. And maybe it will. You never know. Like, they could come up with something tomorrow that will fix it all and be sorted, but we can't bet on that. And therefore, we have to plan and make in our plan that actually we want to, everybody agrees, that, uh, that we want to reduce CO2 emissions to zero. Um, and that's a framework we have to work in. And I think. This concept is to say that that's not the only limitation. Um, the amount of lithium that we extract from the ground, the amount of, uh, um, what, you know, there's other limitations, there's other things that are there, that are natural boundaries, that maybe, maybe there will be a techno fix, and we'll come, and we'll come up with nuclear fission, or whatever the, the good one is, and we'll have a nuclear <laughs> But we can't bear on that. You mean? And therefore, we, we have to, in our conceptions, regulate, come up with a plan and phrase our things and that. And what's that really mean? I think mainly to me, I, I never, it's a negative thing. It's to make sure we don't speak about, well, we can just plan in green growth. To make sure we don't just say, well, we can have more and more, we can have, uh, uh, the demand is a new phone every week for, for people. You know? And actually, to try to come up with phrases and demands that emphasize more, like uh, every time long lasting uh, warranties um, and shorter working uh, weeks, and make sure we're putting forward demands that are more compatible with that, and that we consider it in that framework that there's not just the one planetary limit that we're superseding with the multiples, and we need to, uh, uh, in the same way we have to with CO2, we need to conceptualize that for the rest of our world as well. Cheers. So next is Dilma. Do you want to come in? Um, oh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, uh, so interesting to hear you speak about care work and domestic labor. So I was wondering uh, about what deep growth uh, looks like in those sort of uh, social reproductive uh, like spaces. Uh, so what it looks like in a smaller scale, um, on like families and communities. So, yeah, speak to that. Thank you. And then finally, John, let's just ask him again. So I think John about a minute, if you want to come in. You're very good to let me back in. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this way, yeah. Uh, okay, thanks, thanks for letting me back in. Um, the, uh, I agree with what Jess said and what Tom McConnell said and what Keane said about we need to break, especially the trade unions need to break from the rhetoric of growth and so on. I've always agreed with not always, but I've agreed with that for a long time. And so that, that, that's quite right. And of course, they're committed to Keynesianism, which is an alternative way of growing under capitalism and so on. So I agree with that. A uh, couple of points I don't agree with. Uh, Diana is quite right that we put forward demands for all sorts of things that are incompatible with capitalism. I have no problem with that whatsoever, and we should continue to do that. The problem with degrowth 
is not that it's incompatible, just that it's incompatible with capitalism. It's implemented. It's a disaster for working class people. And the comrade in the back who said this grasped this very straightforward. It's a disaster. It's a disaster for the working class people of Thailand. So if you do it under capitalism, you just create mass unemployment. And the next point, which I think is quite important to understand, is that this is not in the final analysis a debate about one economic concept versus another. The green movement and the environmental movement is full of the idea that the problem is that we've got the wrong economic model. We've got the wrong idea. We need to persuade everybody to abandon the idea of economic growth. This is the wrong way around. Growth is a compulsion from the social relations of capitalism. That's why we have an ideology of growth. We don't have growth because we have the ideology. We have the ideology because this is built in, into uh, the system. So it's not a question of persuading everybody to abandon one idea or one conception and replace it with another. It's a question of how we mobilize working people to change the social relations. And that you can't do around deep growth. So what we end up with, with deep growth, is we have a nice theoretical argument which goes down well in the lot of uh, eco-socialist and environmental circles. And then we have to talk about something completely different when we try and relate to the, to the massive working class people. And I think that's a split that we should have. I don't mean, you know, spend all your time talking about Marx to working class people, but I think that you're... The propaganda, the agitation, the practice you do with working class people has to be related to your theory, and your theory has to be related to that practice in opposite directions. Thanks, John. And thanks to everybody for their contributions. I thought it was a really interesting discussion, and it's good to have people coming in from different angles and perspectives, agreeing or disagreeing with different emphasis of degrowth, and I thought it made for a, an interesting listen. Uh, so finally, we'll just let... Uh, uh, Stefania and Paul back in. We're going to go in the reverse that we did initially. So Stefania will come in first um, to make a contribution, hopefully for five minutes. And then Paul after that, hopefully for five minutes. And then we will wrap up. So Stefania, whenever you're ready, uh, thanks a million. Yes, thanks. Well, this is very challenging responding to all this, <laughs> the, the many interesting things that have been said uh, tonight. And also considering that I could hear more or less 50% of what you were saying so I guess I will just um, uh, gather my thoughts together from what from what I um, understood from the conversation, um, and uh, giving you just one simple take-home message, which is um, we are on the edge of the abyss. I think we all know that. So do we really need to be here debating whether degrowth is or is not the right word, the right concept, etc.? So I think this is kind of superfluous. I think that we should um, wonder what, what is it that we really need to do at this point of in, in history. Um, because even those of us, uh, from what I understood from the conversation, even those of us who are not completely convinced by degrowth, and I, as I said at the beginning, I completely share the idea that degrowth cannot be the, the political slogan that, uh, or even the, the key political uh, um, strategy that we um, uh, bring into our uh, um, eco-socialist politics. It's just one um, one concept that is useful to understand that. Um, 
um, that GDP growth is part of the problem and not of the solution. So this is, to me, this is what uh, degrowth means. It's, uh, it means that um, uh, um, looking for an eco-socialist um, uh, politics means uh, to uh, liberate ourselves from this obsession with GDP growth as if this was the the aim. No, this is not our aim, and uh, and it's not even um, it's part of the problem and not of the of the solution. Okay, that said, <laughs> this is not the myth, the message that I don't I don't see myself as a degrowth activist. No, I am an eco socialist activist, eco socialist feminist activist. So degrowth is just part of uh, the background of of, of um, concepts that I that I found useful. No. But uh, what uh, my political identity is not degrowth because degrowth is not an, an aim, it's not an end in itself. It could be uh, um, at best uh, a means towards a, a political end that uh, cannot be degrowth, of course, because it cannot be um, negative. Uh, no, it could be, it should be a different idea of society. And this is what, uh, uh, this is what we need to, um, to elaborate upon. Um, I think I will stop here. There, there might be many more things uh, to discuss, but uh, I think uh, time is um, over. Okay. Well, that was very interesting. Um, I want to really thank uh, Stefania for uh, agreeing to present uh, to us and listen to 50% of what, you what we had to say. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe just to, to start to address some of the points from my perspective. Um, I do think the point that uh, was made about planetary boundaries is very important. So there's, there's nine planetary boundaries of which CO2 is one, which delimit the safe operating space for humanity on this planet. Um, of the nine, four have been breached, and another two or three are very close to being uh, breached. So it underlines just you know, the extent of the crisis that um, humanity has been brought to people. This is a kind of audience that might know the term Anthropocene, the idea of an age of, of the Earth, the geological age, kind of determined by the impact of humanity. I think that's a useful uh, term. It's a useful way to understand. But obviously, that's not just humanity in the abstract. That's humanity organized on the basis of capitalism. And the decisions are not made by humanity. They're made by the top 1% or the top 0.1% in uh, reality. Um, I think the, uh, yeah, I think that, that, that really links to kind of one of the points that, that John made, um, which Diana, the, the first point, which we, we agree with entirely, that um, degrowth is not going to happen on the basis of, of capitalism. And that's a response. A woman over there asked the question, you said, um, is, it, is it stupid or is it idealistic? I would say it's idealistic. Uh, that the Irish capitalist class is, or any capitalist class around the world, is going to engage in a planned reduction of energy and material uh, throughput. Um, growth is essential for the capitalist system. It, it's a consequence. I mean, I know there's some people in the degrowth movement who kind of who have growth as the driving factor within the current system and profit kind of as a consequence of that. I think that's the wrong way around. Profit is the driving. Um, factor, you know, each individual capitalist is operating to maximize their profit, but in order to do so, the consequence is the whole system needs to grow and grow uh, and uh, 
grow regardless of the consequence for the, the rest of humanity. So I, I don't believe that they're going to uh, do it. Um, I, I think the question like of, oh, it'd be a disaster for working class people if there was degrowth um, within the framework of capitalism. We all accept it's not going to happen. Um, I mean, see, that depends on whether we get to shape what degrowth means. You know, and this is a bit polemical and rhetorical, right? So John isn't going to disagree with it. But is it a disaster for working class people if we have free, green and frequent public transport? Is, it, is, it's not because we have a reduction in energy uses in terms of cars. Is it a disaster for working class people if people get to work for four days and get to have a, a three-day weekend? Is it a disaster for working class people if we get free attic insulation immediately right across the country? Significant reduces in, in energy. And so I, I think like a part of the problem is parts of the degrowth movement have used um, the idea that we have a reduction in GDP. And for like in terms of the article that Jess and I have written, we, we think that's a side point. We think that's a likely consequence of re- reducing energy usage and material uh, throughput. And we're absolutely fine with that. But it's not the aim. It's not the purpose. We should def- Define degrowth not in terms of GDP, but in terms of energy usage and material uh, throughput. And that's the one like substantial. I agree, it's not a transitional demand. It's not something that will mobilize the masses, bring them beyond capitalism. Um, but I, I do think within socialism, it's not meaningless. It actually is, I think it has an important context for what our vision for socialism is. And we have to have a vision for socialism, um, which is about a reduction in energy usage and material throughput. Um, it isn't about returning to primitive you know, communist pre-class society. That's not what it's uh, about, but it's the idea of an emphasis on quality, the quality of people's lives, um, which will include a significant increase in the amount of energy used, for example, in the global uh, south, but that the total envelope of energy used across the world needs to be reduced. And the vast majority of that reduction is obviously in terms of the luxury consumption of uh, the rich and above all the unnecessary arms production, advertising, and so on. So I, I, I do believe that it has something important to tell us about the kind of society that we are fighting for. Um, and also importantly, I, I think, like, I don't believe that there's a contradiction between having a concept for degrowth and then coming up with demands that actually are able to engage big sections of working class people. And in fact, I, I think, like, if that was the case, then we'd have a big problem. I don't think socialists should be going out and campaigning and organizing for things which will result on the whole in a significant increase in energy usage or material throughput. I think we need to be consistent, have a consistent like idea, and that's where it informs us. And that brings me to the question about, okay, what policies and so on. Um, I think a crucial issue is the question in, in this country is the question of data centers. Ireland is a dumping ground for the toxic waste of the 21st century in terms of uh, data. It's kind of part of the strategy of the Irish um, political establishment to try and ground the tech companies that use Ireland as a tech as a tax haven, and by getting them to have a material footprint by saying, "Oh, you should put your data centres here." Um, so the, there's a quote from the, the head of the IDA which describes Ireland as a data superpower. <laughs> it's just like ridiculous. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. There's no power involved whatsoever. You have zero power. You're just a dumping ground for this stuff. Um, but for example. Like, I think degrowth should inform the fact. Obviously, People for Profit has championed. We have a a bill over a year ago, or just close to a year ago, to um, no more data centers in Ireland. The figures came out just this week 
saying how they've increased by over 250% since 2015, the amount of energy being used by data centers. They're 14% currently, they're on track to be 30% by the end of, of, of this decade. It doesn't make any sense, right? And people for profit without having a degrowth conception has brought that forward because it's clearly an eco-socialist party has that sense that this isn't in the interest of ordinary people. But I think where degrowth, for example, definitely comes in is answering the next question, which people, ordinary people will ask you, journalists will ask, okay, well, where's all this data going to go? And your answer can't be the data center should go to a different country. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Like that, We can't argue that because there's actually a certain logic in Ireland being a good country, relatively speaking, for data centers in terms of the climate of, of Ireland. The answer has to be, we need to open the black box of corporate secrecy that shields and shrouds what's happening in the data centers. And we need as a society to see what is socially useful happening in the data centers. So Tom's ebook, I believe that's socially useful. I believe a majority. There are, you know, information, health information. They always say, oh, you're the HSE. That information's, a, if you close data centers, they won't have a functioning health service. Okay, but I want to know, and you can't find this out, how much of the energy of the data centers is used to run algorithms to target you with advertising for stuff that you didn't know that you wanted before you got the ad? And the answer is, like, a whole bunch of it. So, like, that's, I think, it does help us to inform how we answered that question and in a whole series of things that I've, you know, we've, we've spoken about. Sorry, I, I finish on the last point. Um, question, I thought a very good question about the Green New Deal. Say, so when, when Rise launched, you know, we made a big play of socialist uh, Green New Deal. Um, it was actually Emilio, who is, was in the audience, I think has gone somewhere, made the point when we talked, it was like, well, you know, a lot of these Green New Deals are quite eco-modernist in a sense. They're like based on continued extraction, um, more industrial development, the idea of like techno fixes to our, our problems, not to mention the historic problems of the Green New Deal in America in terms of its racist character, problem in terms of indigenous people and, and so on. Um, so it, it's why we now always make the point of saying eco-socialist Green New Deal um, and make the point of trying to put it in a framework, which even if, when, you know, broadly speaking of degrowth or certainly not pro-growth going against the um, the question of eco-modernism um, that is there in, in certainly some of the proposals. But on, on the whole, I am still in favor of keeping it and, and using it. Um, and the reason for that is the most positive thing that balances against all those things is that the Green New Deal in the, like certainly in the Anglo-speaking, English-speaking world, has achieved relatively broad popularity. Um, and for the first time, it's a slight exaggeration, but has, in a, in a, in a quite popular consciousness, working class people, has gotten out the idea that climate, act, taking action to deal with climate change can improve your life. Because up until now, the idea from the environmental movement, or much of what has come across to people from the likes of the Green Party and so on, is that we're going to have climate change and action on climate change and your life is going to be harder. Whereas socialists have to put forward a vision that your life's going to be better by taking, taking these actions. And the Green New Deal helps to do that. And therefore, I think we can infuse it with eco-socialist degrowth uh, concepts and that idea that everybody's life can be better on the basis of us owning, controlling, planning our societies, our economies, um, and as part of that, significantly reducing the amount of total energy that is uh, used and material throughput. Um, thanks.
Okay, that went smoothly enough. Thanks a million, everyone. <laughs> Barring some uh, hiccups. No, thanks a million for everybody uh, for coming and taking part. It was, I thought, a really good discussion. Um, hope that everyone here found it informative. And I think it's been emphasized a bit that this is like an ongoing discussion. You know, it's even on the scale, you see it here, even in PvP we're discussing it, but it's being discussed on the whole eco-socialist left, the environmental left, and that's like part of having a like a living, vibrant movement, uh, that these ideas come in and out of use and, and we figure out what's best to build that movement. Um, also, another thing, I was just meant, uh, notified by a, a member of the Irish anti-war movement that on Saturday they're having a rally uh, at 2.30 uh, at the... Spire uh, against the the war in Ukraine to to raise awareness, stop the war, and things like that. So if people want to make that, that's Saturday, two thirty at the Spire, and I'm sure there will be leaflets handed out. Um, again, just a reminder: if you're looking to donate for the room, uh, there's a card reader, and also I believe buckets around, and that's massively appreciated. And you can also get a copy of our magazine, Rupture Magazine. Uh, this is the latest issue. We have a limited amount at the moment, uh, but they're in print at the moment and coming out. Um, so that might interest some people here. And then finally, it may be most important, uh, we're heading over to Workman's after this for drinks and chats, further conversation if anybody wants. Uh, so it would be great to see some people there. And thanks a million once again for everybody taking part. And uh, most importantly, thanks a million for uh, to Stefania for joining us uh, at this discussion and Paul, of course, uh, too. So thanks a million to everybody and I'll leave it there. Thank you. Another day, one shoelace beating the other people in the bus shouting at one another. 